everybody. Welcome to Read This, Read That. I am Jackie Reed. I'm Joanne Reed. Again, with the hair and makeup. Hello, team. Come through, team. I love it. So, Fridays are working for you. Fridays are working for me because so because I'm now doing the show from Harem, uh, I get hair and makeup here, and I just timed it to have hair and makeup come before the podcast so it. that I can be fabulous on the Zoom. I love it. And <laughs> so I'm before, it was my ratchet version of me doing makeup, and y'all know that was inadequate. <laughs> no, you always look great. You look great <laughs> in the buff, you know, with no hair, no hair and professional hair and makeup. You look great, but it's always nice to have that glam team. It is. You know what I mean? It's fun. It's, it's fun, right? It's fun. And, and I was never a hair and makeup girl. You know, as I've, I've told you, I was, I was basically a boy growing up. I was such a tomboy. That my mom, my mom would do my hair in more in the morning, and you know I'd be on my knees playing marbles with the boys and riding. You know I didn't get to have a dirt bike. She made me have like a girly bike. So I would be getting on their dirt bikes and riding my skateboard. I was a hot mess. Girl, listen. So I would come home looking crazy, and she would just have to shake her head like, "Can I do anything about this?" <laughs> you're, you're a tomboy, as they. As I was they a say. total tomboy, like really, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So anytime I did get made up, it was like shocking. I would come to school like made up, like we had an event or something at school, and they'd be like. You are a girl. <laughs> Aren't you cute? <laughs> I was like, like I, I considered myself a tomboy, but I was always a girly girl too. I was always into, you know, what my hair looked like, what shoes I had on. I remember one day in the third grade, I remember this like yesterday, my mother wanted me to wear a certain pair of shoes to school and I wore them to school. And as soon as my mother dropped me off and drove off, I had the other shoes that I wanted to wear in my backpack. I love that. And change shoes. No, listen, you, my version of that. In the third grade. Oh, in the third grade. Oh, no. I, I was the kid who vacationed Bible school. Uh, did you have to do VBS? We all had yes, to. Yes, okay. <laughs> and vacation Bible school, they wanted us to wear, a, you know, girls had to wear skirts and boys could wear shorts. And I was like, this isn't fair. So every morning, and this was probably like fourth, fourth third, you know, fourth, fifth grade, I would pack my shorts in my backpack and change in the in and change when I got there and they never told on me like that, you know, or I would at least have them under my skirt. That's like, I just wanted to know I was being defiant yeah. so even if the skirt was over it i always had shorts on under it because i was gonna be flipping up so i was you know i love to do the thing on the bars yeah. where you hang upside down and swing and then jump off and then flip and, and flip and leap off you can't do that in a skirt your panties will be out uh like from the beginning before you even start to swing before you even start you, your, your panties you you know you would have basically you would look like an upside down dome your, your, your skirt would be over your head so i would just have the sh- i always had my shorts on that was my little red rebellion was that my little shorts were under there well, listen, those are the, those little moves uh, on the handle on the bars were the beginnings of my uh, interest in gymnastics. And so I took it there and beyond. Hey, but I, I you're asked, really a gymnast. Yeah, you really yeah, got into it. Yeah, yeah, I really did. I competed in everything. But let me ask you, if there was a bar in front of you now, would you could you still do that move if there was a like a like a spotter? If somebody was like, we got you, Joy, and we'll hold you. And like, would you try it? Jackie, a bitch is old. Okay. <laughs> What's that song? A bitch is old. A bitch right. is old today. <laughs> so no, <laughs> I wouldn't. Regina Hall, that is class. You wouldn't try it? Hell no. I hurt myself. I have no. I'm not. I, the, the, no one who knew me growing up would believe that I'm as uncoordinated now as I am. Because I was so. I was so good at every sport. I was good. Except soccer. I was not good at soccer. And I used to get clowned because I was terrible at soccer. But I was good at every other sport. 
I, you know, the whole thing about kicking with your feet, and you can't pick it up with your hands. Like that just didn't work for me, you know, but I could play football. I could throw a spiral. I was the only girl probably in my school who could throw a spiral. <laughs> I don't even know like, what a spiral is. Meaning when you, when girls throw the football all the time, the ball would just flop, wobble, wobble, wobble. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But, ask your boyfriend. You, 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 when you throw it, you, you, there's a way you have to hold it um, to make sure that the ball spirals through the air and goes straight. And you could do that? Yes, ma'am. I could, I could play basketball. I bounce, you know, I dribbled like a, like a boy would dribble. I could just dribble. The girls would be like, blah, 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 with their hands all high and all messed up. I could run track. I was fast. I was running track. So it's weird. Cause I was a nerd. I was a straight up nerd. I had the Coke bottle glasses and everything, but what saved me from being the kind of nerd that gets locked in your locker is that I was also athletics. So I was both. I was both a tomboy. All my friends were boys. And I, I hung out with boys and I was a tomboy, but I was also a nerd. I was a nerd tomboy. <laughs> it was yeah. a weird combination and such. it was such a small town. So when did you stop from. with the sports? When did it end? Why, when you went on to high school and beyond, did you, when did it stop? When did you oh, just stop doing sports? No, in high school, I was much more focused on my academics. Once I, once I decided I was going to get out of that town and I really was focused on academics, <laughs> Track coach kept trying to recruit me, and I ran. You act like you grew up in the Footloose town. Stop. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get out of this town. They can't they get out of this town. <laughs> it was such a small town. I mean, you, there were only two elementary schools. You either went to A or B. Everybody went to one of two churches, and then the Baptist church that rented my church, which was my Methodist church. It was basically three churches, two schools, and one high school where we all converged. It was really small. Montbello was a small town, so I was sick of everybody. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was like, "Get me out of here." I was done with all these Negroes. I was like, I'm going. I want to leave. But the, but so I, I ran track all the way through 11th grade. Started in 12th grade, the track coach was like, you really should run. And I just didn't want to. I really wanted to focus on my studies. So yeah. I ran a little bit here and there, but I didn't do a ton. And I competed. I used to compete in track. And then when I got to college, because I was such a football fanatic, when I tell you I was a yeah. fanatic, I would cry when the Broncos would lose. I was such a fanatic. I, I started to, you know, I was I was dealing with a lot, depression, everything. My mother had just passed. I was literally not really right in the head in college. But I had originally planned to be a, um, there's a there was a, a squad of mostly girls who used to work for the football team. And they were literally, you know, cleaning the equipment. You know, you were like a gopher for the team. But it was a thing you could do as a freshman. And I was going to sign up. But baby, when they told me what time you had to be there, you had to be there at five o'clock in the morning. Oh First time God. they told me that, I was like, yeah, I'm going to skip that. <laughs> that's when it ended. <laughs> Freshman year of college, I was like, you know what I'm going to do in the morning? Sleep. <laughs> wow. I, you know, I hear, and a lot of people have heard how hard Harvard is and how depressed a lot of students get at that school because it's so hard and so challenging and so competitive to go there after losing your mother and be, you know, to enter in there without all everything that Harvard puts on lays on the table to go there in that state. I mean, hats off to you for, you know, going, not only going there, but thriving. I know it wasn't easy though. I mean, no. I don't, I, mean, I don't mean to make, to make it seem like you got there and just everything. I mean, I know it was hard. And I didn't thrive. I mean, let's just be clear. I failed most of my classes freshman year. And like, it was weird. And it, the thing is you go there and when you're in your high, when I was in my high school, you're like a, a, a a, a small fish in a big pond or big fish in a small pond. Like you're the super smart one and you're like always yeah. getting the best grades. And I was second in my class and it's, you're always the smartest. Now you're with lots of smart people. And so you're just one of many smart people. And then you have a lot of dumb rich people who shouldn't be there who are like C and D students. They really suck. They're really stupid. But you know, they were the, the Donald Trump's of the world who got right. in because parents paid for them. And right. then there was just like the mega rich people who I've never seen that kind of wealth. Like one of the girls, I think I've said this before, Hope Wigglesworth, 
that was in my freshman class, the dorm was named Wigglesworth. That was her family. They couldn't <laughs> let her stay in that dorm because that was the name of her family. You know, wow. there were people who had that kind of money, like Kennedy money, like money, money. And so those people, some of them were smart, some of them were not, they, but they were in because they were legacies. You had the legacy kids. Yeah. Then you had the reverse. I came from a town that was 80 percent black, walk into a college that's six percent black. So there was almost no black people. And then wow. the black people varied from super rich African princes, you know, princes kid to African-Americans to a tiny number of public school kids like me. And so it, you're a minority in a minority in a minority in a minority. And, it, wow. and I think it's better now. But Harvard is not a woke environment. Like the first time you immediately get hit with that racism, freshman year, you're getting challenged as to whether you belong there, told that basically you're an affirmative action, baby, you don't belong, you don't, you shouldn't even be here. Like Harvard is, and you know what they do when you get there? They give you the suicide hotline and the Facebook of who are the faces of everybody in your freshman class and go, good luck, you at Harvard. Are you serious? <laughs> that shit is crazy. But anyway, let's move on. They're like, good luck. It was rough. Harvard was hard. Like I'm, I was, I, I, I'm not one of those people who loves their, who goes back and wist, wistfully thinks about college. Some people do. I don't. Oh my god. Well, I'm glad you made it through. Announcing the Mocha Podcast Network, an innovative lifestyle podcast network featuring conversations from a black perspective, curated with respected voices led by actresses and comedians Sherry Shepard and Kim Whitley. We're funny and we have a yes. point of view. We call that edumatainment. That's what we call it. Ed- is that what it is? Veteran TV journalist Rolanda Watts. Shocking the heck out of everybody. The legendary Unky Divas in Vogue. This topic is girl groups in the industry. To syndicated broadcast personalities, Lonnie Love and Dee Dee McGuire, as well as an array of experts and activists. Mocha Podcast Network, a lifestyle destination with authentic voices and perspectives designed to enrich and empower women of color with a unique listening experience. More than a destination, the Mocha Podcast Network is a full-service studio that offers an ongoing portfolio of production, distribution, marketing, guest booking, and most importantly, ad sales. With a unique revenue model for podcasters that includes customized promotional campaigns created specifically around podcaster and targeted audience, service social media promos and pushes, MPN brand advertising, targeted electronic newsletter, experienced sales representation, For advertisers, the Mocha Podcast Network is a safe marketplace to align their brands with trusted voices, organically engaging the highly in-demand female consumer and more. With quality over quantity, from concept to completion, now is the time for content creators and brands to join the innovative Mocha Podcast Network and experience unapologetic conversations with a new perspective. some hot topics, Joanne. We got to talk about this whole election situation. A lot of folks are feeling like, and I want to, I want you to set this straight. A lot of folks are feeling like it was a disaster for the Democratic Party, but I've heard some people say, well, it was a wake-up call, but not a disaster. How would you classify the results of the election? Because there were a lot of, a lot of, you know, we know about Virginia, right? Um, There were a lot of people that felt like there were a lot of races that we didn't that didn't make, you know, the top stories yeah. but were important wins for the Democratic Party. So how would you sum up the election? 
Well, I mean, well, and right, New Jersey. Um, defi- so there was, a, in, in one way, Virginia just lived up to its history and New Jersey defied history, right? So de- New Jersey is a state that almost always flip-flops between Republican and Democratic governors. And there is there has rarely been a two-term governor in New Jersey, period. Like, they literally just like to flip-flop. They do a Democrat, then a Republican, then a Democrat, and a Republican. They do it all the time. Yeah. Phil Murphy came after Chris Christie, who was a Republican. So the, the, so Phil Murphy did something that actually defied history. He won re-election. That's unusual, especially for a Democrat. Yeah. So so that on the on one side shows that, you know, the Democratic Party, when you run a proper race and you're, you know, and you're an incumbent who's re- reasonably popular, you can still get reelected as a Democrat. On the Virginia side, their history is that only, I think, once since the 1970s, have they reelected a governor of any party? They don't reelect their governors. Their governors have to serve one term and then they can run again for re- reelection, but they have to skip and wait another cycle. So they can't run back to back. So right. governors there don't get reelected. It doesn't happen. Terry McAuliffe was governor before. He's a re- he's a retread candidate. He's an old Clinton hand. People knew who he was. He's not super popular. He wasn't that popular. The previous Democratic governor, Northam, did a lot of important stuff, you know, that, you know, maybe could have gotten him reelected. But Terry McAuliffe, when he was governor, he did a lot on um, you know, de-incarceration and giving people back their civil rights, right to vote. So that and, and the next Democratic governor, Northam, made it real easy to vote in that state. It's very open in terms of being able to vote absentee, vote early. It's one of the easiest states to vote in the country. That said... That the history suggested it was going to be a Republican because that's the way Virginia is. They tend to like to have their governor be of the opposite party as the president. So history was on what's that's his name side, Youngkin side. That said, that said, it was after <laughs> from the point of view of democracy. I think because at this point, Republicans aren't just some benign force. And I'm not saying this as a partisan Democrat. Republican, the Republican Party itself is dangerous because they have divorced themselves from democracy. They don't believe in democracy. You notice they're not all calling for uh, an audit. You notice they ain't out here screaming for an audit because they won. So when they win, they think the elections are legitimate. When they lose, they want to audit and they think the election is fake. Number one. And no policy. Like what policy are the Republicans running on? Critical aside race. from critical race theory. That's it. And so that's the problem is that he the fact that he was able to use this malign attack on history and particularly on black history, on black people in history. And that that is something that was a winning message for 57 percent of white women voters. They were the swing vote. Yeah. White women voted 57 percent in favor of the guy who said he was going to ban Toni Morrison books. That's troubling. And Democrats should be concerned because they keep chasing those voters, those white women voters and white men went even more for Youngkin than they did for Trump. So the reality is, is that that message of racial division worked. They've also got this lieutenant governor who's Jamaican, has the same name as my darling daughter, <laughs> which I'm annoyed by. I saw <laughs> Jamaican-American. Um, but they're trying to now use her like way they used, used to use Clarence Thomas, being like, how can there be racism if we elected her? Right. Correct. And it's like y'all only had two, a black and a brown to choose from. The, the Democrat was was part Afro-Cuban, part Irish and part Lebanese. So she was brown and the other one is black. And you voted for the black one who's the Republican that you don't get an, a special award for that. 
You literally only had to choose from two women of color. You pick one of them. You don't get anti-racism points for that. That is stupid. But how but- does the Democratic <laughs> Party keep losing on this narrative of critical race theory? How do they keep letting something that really does not exist in any school in the state of Virginia? Or anywhere. You know what I mean, like mm-hmm. how, how does the Democratic Party keep losing on this? Because Republic- like, what is the problem? Republicans have the advantage of being shameless. They'll say anything to win. They don't care if they have to embrace Nazis, if they have to embrace, you know, people who say Jews will not. They don't care. They have anti-Semitism, racism. They'll embrace anything they think they're based on. JFK Jr. is coming back. Damn. They're like, we want the QAnon vote. What do we got to say? What do we got to say to make you QAnon people vote for us? You want us to say JFK Jr. is coming back? We'll say that. We won't say he's not coming back. We won't say he's coming back. We won't say he's not coming back. They will excuse any vice if it gets them power. So shamelessness helps you. The other thing is that their message hits you at the feels, whereas Democrats' message tries to hit you in the head at the head. Their message says, it annoys me as a white person when I keep hearing Thomas Jefferson was evil, George Washington was an evil slaveholder. It annoys me because I love the heroic version of Thomas Jefferson, especially if I'm in Virginia. That's where he's from, right? It annoys me that you're now saying that my iconography of Jefferson has to be, has to be littered with slavery. It annoys me that I have to use the right pronouns. It annoys me that I have to like be conscious of if somebody is trans. It annoys me that I have to be politically correct all the time. I can't tell a cute little racist joke anymore because that used to be fine and now it's not. It annoys me that you keep saying anti-racism is something I need to experience because of George Floyd. I don't want to hear it. I don't like it. I don't like this anti-racism. It makes me feel bad. And when Republicans say they see that and they go, We'll fix that. We'll pass a law saying no one can make you feel bad. No one can make you feel bad for being white. No one can tell stories about history that are going to make you feel bad about your forebears. If you want to lodge your Confederate treasonous ancestors, we're going to make a law that says you can do it. You can feel good. White folks feel great. And they do white folks feel great. And everybody goes, we feel great. (laughs) You know, and Democrats go, well, you know, that's really not nice. But there really isn't any critical race theory. So don't worry, we won't make you feel bad. See how that's not an argument against critical race theory? That's saying we're not really going to do that. So there is no critical. That is not an argument. If your argument is we aren't doing critical race theory, then you're not arguing that you, you are not disputing the idea that critical race theory is bad. Exactly. So their problem is they are arguing in their head instead of arguing with their gut because they I don't think Democrats in general have the gut instinct to defend black folks. I just don't think they do. They don't know how they don't want to whatever because they're so afraid of making white voters angry that they won't. They, they're so ginger. They don't want to openly just defend us because the actual answer is grow up. Yeah. History is complicated. Thomas Jefferson is complicated. He did some good things, but he did some really bad things. And you are uh, mature enough and your kid is strong enough to learn that grow up. That's the answer. They don't want to say that. Uh, All right, we're going to have to stop there because we have some great guests coming up. Keep it here for Read This, Read That. We'll be right back. All right, so distinguished documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson, who is a MacArthur Fellow, the recipient of the 2013 National Humanities Medal from President Obama and multiple primetime Emmy Award winner, is here, and his co-director, Tracy Curry, They're both here to speak about his latest film, Attica, which premieres on Showtime this weekend. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Thank you both for being here. So Stanley Nelson, um, everybody, you know, you you just heard that incredible resume. 
Obviously, you are a legend uh, in your own time. But one of the things that was left out of that introduction is Tracy Curry. I've known her since. I, I am so proud that Tracy, you know, but it, it really should be the, the minor thing on her resume because her resume is like bomb. But she was a producer on AM Joy. And Jackie, I don't know if what? you knew that. But yes, we've been, uh, I've known her since, and she actually was a Melissa Harris Perry producer as well. And those brilliant, like gorgeously, beautifully produced segments on there. Tracy Curry did so many of those. So this lady, I, I've known that she that she was going to be this person. But so she I'm helped to pave the way for Boy. She, she, did. she helped to pave the way for that show because when Melissa did it, it just really opened up something really different totally. for MSNBC. And yeah. it, it's just and you stepped into that and, and took it, you know, to another level. I love that. And well, Tracy, well, Jackie, you, said you don't remember, but you and I crossed paths back in my BET days many moons ago. So. No, girl. Dust off those cobwebs. That was a long time ago. But yes, it's great yeah. to have you both here. And congratulations. Thank, Thank you. So Thank you. Let's, let's talk about this film. Stanley, I'm going to start with you. Um, Attica, it is one of those stories that I think everyone obviously knows the name because like Attica, like, but no one really knows what that means. And you only know that lots of people were taken hostage and lots of people died. But the story has really been upside down and backwards because even I thought I knew the story, but didn't really know it until seeing this incredible documentary Attica, which I think it already debuted October 29th. Everybody can watch it Um, on which which venue because I I watched it in a screener. Is it on HBO Max? No, it's it's on Showtime um, November 6th. November sixth. Where is it? Where did it? Where was it released sooner than that? Was it in theaters? Yeah, we we did a bunch of festivals. It actually premiered. It was opening night at the Toronto Film Festival. Oh, got you. Now, Stanley, why is this something you wanted to take on? Well, I mean, I, I feel that that it's one of the the seminal stories. You know, in in the last fifty years, it, it's one of the, um, the the stories that defines America in so many ways. But it's about so much more than than uh, just a prison uprising. It's about the uh, penal system in the United States. It's about race. Uh, it's about the power. Uh, basically, at, in the final analysis, Attica is, is the powerless, the prisoners, you know, standing up against the very powerful. It's about politics and race, how race intersects politics. Um, so it's about so much. And I felt that so many people don't know the story. And um, the people who were involved in it are still alive, many of them. But they're getting older, and it was a great time to tell the story. Absolutely. And Tracy, I know uh, and co-director, co-producer of this uh, documentary, Tracy Curry, um, you did a lot of these principal interviews. So you were able to really sit in the room with these survivors of really what was, it was kind of torture. I mean, some of the scenes looked like out of, like if you had a camera back during slavery, you know, men having to stand naked, um, you know, in the yard and, and doused with hoses and um, being just brutalized and, and humiliated after this whole thing happened. What was it like to interact with those survivors? Yeah, so so I was in the room and also virtual rooms because some of the interviews I did sitting on my sofa um, through Zoom. Um, uh, you know, Joy, for all of the people um, that were touched by this and that, and when I say everyone, I mean everyone from not only the former prisoners to um, the former employees who were hostages to the families, to the media, the observers, um, this was a profound trauma um, in the lives of, of everybody that experienced this. There's um, someone who wrote a book about Attica who writes that Attica has a way of holding people. Um, and I have found that to be true 
Um, you know, in some of those initial conversations, obviously this is not something that people are jumping to remember the, you know, the worst thing that you've ever experienced in your life and recount it in great detail for a perfect stranger who calls you up on the telephone. Um, <laughs> so, you know, some of it real early on was just having those initial conversations to kind of get people comfortable, um, be as transparent as possible with them about what Stanley and my intentions were. Um, for these like really precious slices of their lives and how we intended to use it in the story. Um, but what I found was after that kind of initial um, trust was established, that trauma and the memories and the emotion that you see people communicating in the film was right there under the surface. I mean, the rage, the, 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 the shame, um, the disappointment, the fear, all of those things. I don't think there was one interview once we got on camera where there were not tears um, or some type of like very, very profound emotion. Um, even 50 years later, it was all right there. And my job was just to kind of create the space for people to experience that and feel it however way they wanted and, and to let them communicate that in the interviews on camera. Have any of these survivors had, did you all have a special screening for them and family members? And what was that like if you, if you did do something like that? Because I wonder what it was like for them to see it. Yeah, we had a couple of screenings. We had a, a a screening down at Lincoln Center in New York um, and, and really just for survivors and people who participated in the film and the crew of the film and, and that. And then we had a screening at the Apollo where we invited a number of, of, of the, uh, as many as we could get uh, to New York to, to view the film. And, and we actually, we actually had a therapist, uh, African-American woman uh, who um, uh, we announced this, that she would be in back and, and uh, if anybody wanted to, to, to talk or needed to talk during the film or after the film, she was available. And talk a little bit about, and I remember that Apollo screening because I was there and it was fabulous. It was amazing. And just seeing the men get on stage and the gentleman who needed, um, you know, a, a cane to help him get on. It just reminded you that these stories are not ancient. These are living, breathing human beings. We're still here <clears throat> and still suffering in a lot of ways. But Tracy, you mentioned something that I really want to come back to. This idea of making a documentary, not being able to be in person with people 100% of the time. Have you ever done a project like that before? Because I know you've done a few docs. Doing it on Zoom, how does that change the way you're doing your, 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 your art? Yeah, Joy. Well, for starters, the pandemic was the elephant in every single room. Uh, <laughs> question. Um, number one, there was just the question of, can we even do this in a pandemic? Do people feel comfortable coming out? to do the interviews for the ones that we did in person. This happened 50 years ago. Every single person is in an age category where they are especially vulnerable to this virus. Um, so some of the interviews we did in person, taking every possible um, precaution for everybody's safety from crew to interview subjects. Um, and then the point at which it became sort of untenable for us to do a lot of traveling. Remember, this is the point in the pandemic where we're still all washing our produce <laughs> in the house. Um, we sort of had to think out of the box and figure out how we can get it done. Um, and so we entered the, the wild, wild world of pandemic production, which requires, um, for our purposes, having a local crew um, go to the interview subjects. Um, we were just sort of really clear about um, not doing this thing where you sort of mail people a kit and set it up. Um, Stanley himself has done a lot of interviews that way. And he can tell you that, you know, the subject does not really care about how it looks <laughs> when they're doing that. And so we wanted those interviews to feel as seamless as possible with the ones where I was in person. Um, and yeah, it's a little weird um, at first, especially <laughs> because these conversations are so intimate and so emotional about um, people's memories, but we worked with some great production crews that kind of just made it feel that way as much as possible. So 
um, I'm kind of looking at them the way that I'm looking at you guys now and they're looking at me and we get as close as possible to that in the room feeling. And fortunately, it worked out. I'll say one of the things I'm proudest about is I don't think you can tell watching the film which ones I was actually in the room and which ones I was at my house. Um, So, you know, it it all worked out. Thank God. Start with the fact that I didn't even know until we were prepped. We were preparing um, our friend, our mutual friend, Kaima, who's producing the segment, uh, who you know, I think since college, she's producing your segment for for, oh, that's the AM Joy for the readout tonight. (laughs) And she's the first person who told me that any of them were on Zoom. I, even when we interviewed, I did not even think about the Zoom part at all. I'm sorry, Jack, I interrupted you. I know you had a question. No, 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 it's okay. I just wanted to ask Stanley to kind of go in further with that. With the pandemic, how did it impact the entire process? Like not just doing the interviews, but, you know, getting the editing done, when you plan to release it, the screenings. How did that, did it push things back at all? Yeah, so so I think that that um, the COVID struck really in in March and uh, of uh, two thousand twenty. I think you know. I mean, all the time you know for the last year and a half, it's, it's just been crazy. And we were scheduled to, to start filming in April. Um, so at first, we took a hiatus, you know, and just kind of you know Tracy was still working on researching, but we just kind of were trying to figure out how to do how to do things, and then we slowly got back into production. Um, I should say that, you know, uh, Tracy, who did all the interviews, just did an incredible job. I mean, we wanted the the interviews to look like we had shot them, you know, pre-COVID or post-COVID. We didn't want them to to look like, you know, um, 10 years from now, you you say, well, you know, why does that thing look so crappy? (laughs) We wanted them to look great, and and they do. And, and, you know, you you can't tell. Um, and, And none of them were shot you know really on zoom so tracy was on zoom um and and what what the what the interview subjects are seeing are are, is a computer with tracy's image but we have a a real you know great camera in the room filming and 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 it just looks great and and um it it slowed us down i mean you know in in so many ways COVID, covid affected us you know so that usually we we do like three interviews a day we were you know, limited to maybe one interview a day. We had to get in and sanitize the area bef- the day before, and then we shot, um, and we had to make sure people are comfortable. A couple of interviews we did outside, you know, when it was warm enough to do interviews outside, but you don't want people outside, you know, wearing a coat. So, so we, you know, yeah. it, it was just a matter of, of really adjusting and constantly, you know, I mean, nobody's ever experienced anything like the COVID thing before. So we just had to keep adjusting and, and work with it. But, you know, I, finally, we, we made no compromises. I mean, you know, Tracy just did an incredible job. And, and the interviews look great. And the guys, you know, that the interview, you know, from the pr- former prisoners to the observers, to the hostage families, to the National Guard, they're all just emotional, you know, and, and you can't tell if Tracy's in the room or not, you know, I, and um, I'm just fascinated with, with, with how it was done and, and then how it turned out so beautiful. Yeah, you know, because if you let some people do their own Zoom, it would have had like a fuzzy background. It, yeah. They would have tried to it do like, been like this. Screen. Yeah, and it would have been like, it, it would look like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, so, yeah, I, I did some interviews. Some people interviewed me, you know, and, and, I, and I didn't care that much about the background. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to camera up and like, you know, it, it'll be what it but is. But you marketing right now, Stanley. Now, I see I see the ad. Yeah. So you marketing right now. And I'm giving Tracy oh. Curry a 10 for her background as well, because that is 
Room Raiders is going to love this. Um, I I do want to ask you, Tracy, that, you know, you did at at one point get up to Attica and you were there. And I wonder if you since heard back from anyone from there who's seen the film and what the reaction to the real true story coming out, which is not exactly a uh, affirming story for the people of Attica. I mean, it really shows that's kind of a mean little town. Um, with a lot of mean police, you know, and and you really get that from this film. Have you had any feedback? Feedback? Yeah, um, there's one person that was in the film. We've gotten, I think, DVDs to anyone that couldn't come to the screening. Um, and you know, it's it's tough, right? Like, um, obviously, the uh, the people of Attica, the guards um, who were hostages, have a bit of a different perspective mm. um, on what happened. I mean, I think they appreciate that we at least made an attempt to show. Um, the human beings that live there in Attica Village. We didn't want to do this productive thing of like good and evil, heroes and villains, black and white. The story is way more complicated than that. Indeed. And ultimately, it's all about people. So there's, you know, mixed feelings. I don't think that they're um, as, you know, kind of exuberant about the story and the way that we're telling it as some of the men who were formerly prisoners. But I think they appreciate that we made the effort. And yeah. Stanley, I want to ask about the archival footage. How hmm. difficult was that? tracking down, getting permission, getting access to that, because that was an important part of the storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think because I've done a number of historical films, you know, um, we know that, that it's going to take time. We didn't know that it was going to take COVID time, but we knew that it was going to take time. Um, and so we started out from, from the day we began. Also, when we're writing the budget for the film, we put a lot of, uh, a good portion of the money into archival. Because we want to be able to afford any archival that we need. I mean, one of the worst things that, that can happen is, you know, you find a great piece of archival and, and you can't afford to, to pay for it. So, you know, we, we put a lot of money into, into archival and a lot of time into finding uh, our, the archival footage. We had an archival producer, uh, Rosemary Rotunzi, who worked, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. For a year and a half or so, you know, every day, all day, trying to find archival. Um, but archi- some of the archival houses were closed. You know, um, some of the smaller archival houses, they were just closed, you know, and, and uh, because of COVID. And we don't know when we're coming. Um, and so everything took a little longer um, and especially took a little bit more pushing, you know, took a lot of calls rather than, you know, one or two calls. It took 10, 20 calls, mm-hmm. you know, from, um, to get the stuff. But, but we got everything that, that we wanted. Um, and, you know, I, I, I try to describe the archival and I can't, you know, I, I, it's just, you know, we've won a couple of awards, you know, I mean, actually they, believe it or not, they give out awards for archive use of archival footage. And we've won a couple of awards, you know, for that, but I, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. You know, I mean, this has like the, the, the most and the best and most incredible um, and unexpected archival I've ever seen. How well, expensive can it get um, to to pay for? I, I mean, you don't have to oh, get real expensive you know, because <laughs> yes, a lot of so. people people love documentaries, but this is a piece of it that people just don't know. Right. This cost right here. So, so for 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 the networks, you know, which were NBC, ABC, CBS at that time, I want to say it can be like a hundred dollars a second. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you think about that, you know, I can't do the math, but sixty seconds would be what. Six thousand dollars for 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 each minute. Yeah, you know, it it can be it wow. can be that much. It's really expensive. And Tracy, I'll I'll ask you the kind of exit question here. What do you what do you want people to take from this film? It, ideally, what do you want folks to walk away from it feeling 
understanding, including uh, and throw in if you want to, because the media is also a subject of this. But what do you want people to take away from the film? Yeah, Joy, I mean, I don't know if, um, you know, the film necessarily offers any answers because so many of the issues that the film tackles are just, it just feels so insurmountable right now with whether it's, you know, the state's abuse of its power to abuses by law enforcement to um, media malpractice, as you mentioned, and all of these things. But I would hope that people um, maybe watch the film and take it as an invitation to really grapple with some of these difficult questions. I mean, I think in some ways, what we're asking people to do in the film is something that we're not really comfortable with doing, um, which is to look at people who are in prison because they committed a crime and hold two thoughts in their head at one time that, you know, these are also human beings. And if, in fact, the way that our justice system is supposed to work is that you there's crime and there's punishment, you don't then expect on the punishment side for the state to then continue to dehumanize people, deprive mm-hmm. people of their rights make it so that people are living this half life when they come out because they're not fully citizens. And so I think the film is an invitation for us to really grapple with those difficult questions and hopefully reconsider some of those things anew and really ask, um, you know, what we're willing to allow the state to do in the name of not even making us safer, but making us feel safer. Um, and, and is the warehousing of 2 million people um, what we really want um, as as a country and as a society. So I hope the film just invites people to at least think about and begin to ask some of those things. Wow. All right. Well, thank you both. Uh, Stanley Nelson, Tracy Curry, the film is Attica, premiering on Showtime this weekend. Thank you both and congratulations. Thank you. And as a, as a, as a, as a note before we exit, uh, Stanley, I just watched, uh, finished your Miles documentary. Um, and, you know, I... You can pair these two things together because to the point that Tracy was just making, when he talks about how he felt when he came back to the United States after having been in Paris and realizing just how unfree black people are in this country, even he as a famous lauded, you know, musical genius. And that that's that shock of what America can be for us. It's such a huge thread that I think goes through both of these films. But everyone must see Attica. It's really, I think it should be required viewing for you to really truly understand our history. It is a historical piece and a beautiful piece of art. Um, Stanley Nelson, Tracy Curry, y'all are brilliant. Thank you so much for being with us. One last question, Stanley and Tracy, you both can answer this. How can we support this film? Mm, That's a good question. In what ways can we support this aside from going to Showtime and watching it? I'm not sure. I mean, I think that, that that's the first thing. Tell people. You know, go go watch it. It's going to be on over and over again, you know, uh, on Showtime. Tell people before, watch it, you know, and, and then tell tell people after. I think that, you know, um, it's a hard film to see without being moved. I mean, it, it's it's a really uh, moving piece of work and, and hopefully people will see it and, and they'll be moved. And just, you know, we want the, the as many people as possible to see the film. That's what that's what I want. Yeah. Amen. We'll make sure. All happen. right. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. I know we got to go, you guys. We are tight. So we're just going to say, please listen, subscribe, tell a friend, follow us on social media at Read This, Read That. And (laughs) (laughs) And don't forget to follow us on social media at Read This, Read That. And on Twitter, leave off the T for savings. Back to you, Jackie Reed. (laughs) All right, you guys. Goodbye. We'll see you next week. Make sure we like and share and follow. um, um, See Attica. See Attica. See Attica. Support, support, support. And support Vegan Sexy Cool in the readout. Bye. Bye.
Announcing the Mocha Podcast Network, an innovative lifestyle podcast network featuring conversations from a black perspective. Curated with respected voices led by actresses and comedians Sherry Shepard and Kim Whitley. We're funny and we have a yes. point of view. We call that edumatainment. That's what we call it. Ed- is that what it is? Veteran TV journalist Rolanda Watts. Shocking the heck out of everybody. The legendary Unky Divas in Vogue. This topic is girl groups in the industry. To syndicated broadcast personalities, Lonnie Love and Dee Dee McGuire, as well as an array of experts and activists. Mocha Podcast Network, a lifestyle destination with authentic voices and perspectives designed to enrich and empower women of color with a unique listening experience. More than a destination, the Mocha Podcast Network is a full-service studio that offers an ongoing portfolio of production, distribution, marketing, guest booking, and most importantly, ad sales. With a unique revenue model for podcasters that includes customized promotional campaigns created specifically around podcaster and targeted audience, service social media promos and pushes, MPN brand advertising, targeted electronic newsletter, experienced sales representation, For advertisers, the Mocha Podcast Network is a safe marketplace to align their brands with trusted voices, organically engaging the highly in-demand female consumer and more. With quality over quantity, from concept to completion, now is the time for content creators and brands to join the innovative Mocha Podcast Network and experience unapologetic conversations with a new perspective.